And welcome to Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World, giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m., Mondays at 1 a.m. and Wednesdays at 9 a.m. for that special edition of Tell Me Your Story. And we uh, stream live at those times at richarddugan.com. The podcasts are on SoundCloud, iTunes, TuneIn Radio, Spotify, Stitcher, Player FM, Blueberry, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, and many other locations. And we're also on YouTube where you can watch these interviews. You know, I uh, received a, uh, uh, several emails through a gentleman on LinkedIn in wanting to uh, help me to boost my uh, ratings, my ranking, my subscribers, uh, all of that stuff. And apparently he hasn't listened to too many of my programs because um, that's really not the goal of this program. It's not to stack up numbers on social media. It's to get the information out there to the people who are interested in it. And if you know someone who is or who might be, you can certainly uh, pass along the link. RichardDugan.com is the website. You can also go to Richard Dugan on YouTube. You can go to SoundCloud and look up the channel, Tell Me Your Story. Uh, you'll find us, I guarantee you, and, um, and then they will as well, and they'll spread the word. And that's how it works. You tell one person, then they tell uh, uh, somebody, and... And then it just it just starts to spread, and it it starts slow and small. We've been only we've only been doing this for a scant fifteen years. I mean, you know, it's no big deal. <laughs> but to our pro, to our guest, it's uh, it, it's I don't I don't want to say it's a big deal for him either. But what is a big deal is changing this world for the better, making a difference while we're here. And uh, I don't know about my guest, but uh, I've experienced. Uh, a few losses in this year of 2022. I want to welcome to our uh, our uh, uh, program here, Michael uh, Mike Younger. Uh, he has a website, MikeYounger.com. He's a musician. He's he's all kinds of things. Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, Richard. How are you doing, man? Doing very well. Uh, if if you were to uh, list, shall we say, uh, and not necessarily in any particular order, but let's just say say the top five. Um, attributes, if you will, of Mike uh, Younger, and I'm going to throw in the first one, and that being a uh, singer-songwriter. I'll, I'll add those two together as one. Uh, what, what else would you, uh, what other attributes would you add to uh, Mike Younger? Well, I would put band leader in there as well, uh, although on my upcoming trip in, to California, I won't have my band with me. I will be coming solo, but uh, band leader and singer-songwriter Writer are different things, so I would definitely, you know, mm -hmm. put, put that one in there. And then uh, I guess I'm a bit of a homesteader as well. You know, me and my girl have a, a, a mini farm here north of Nashville. We raise some livestock and, and grow some food and stuff like that, and I've learned how to get most of what we need off of these five acres. And uh, so that's number three. Number four, I would say that I'm somewhat of a of an environmental agitator, <laughs> <laughs> but in a good way. In a good way. Yeah. In a good way, and uh, you know, I, I guess that would maybe that's a big enough thing that it, it, it spills over into number five too. Well, so, uh, uh, which would be? Well. Uh, let me think about that for a second. How about a change agent? <laughs> Maybe so. Maybe so. 
because I'd like to think, think that most of our guests on this program are just that. They're change agents. They want to make a change for the better for everybody, not just make a change to make a change. You know, there's no there's no point in that. Uh, right. Well, I, I, I definitely feel that uh, in order to repair some of the damage that our society and our world has sustained over the last X number of years, you could take it in five year increments or 20 or 30 year increments. But the damage that we've sustained over the last measurable time has to be addressed, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, my particular field of my particular field of act of engagement is I have this robotic uh, vacuum cleaner that just clicked on and he makes a whole bunch of noise. So I have we, we have all kinds of uh, creatures that uh, uh, like to share this program. We've had dogs and cats and birds. <laughs> and I say, hey, bring them, bring them. It's no problem. Um, so with your music. Uh, yes. You, you, would you? What would you? Would you basically say from those attributes that you mentioned earlier? Would you say that that's really where your music is coming from, or going to? Shall we say, in terms of of uh, overall message and mission statement? Well, I would say that I'm 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 a, a protege or a, a continuity of a line of songwriting and a, tradi a musical tradition that carries with it the examination of topical issues of the time. Mm -hmm. And uh, because of that, and in that context, uh, I've written tunes when, you know, when, when the United States uh, invaded Iraq on premises that were later revealed to be false. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a, a moment that my songwriting was applied to uh, uh, the, the principle of anti-war peace, mm -hmm. the principle of maintaining peace and not engaging in war for profit or uh, whatever our underlying reasoning happened to be on that one. And I know that 9-11 complicated the issue most certainly, but uh, at that time I felt very strongly that Iraq was not the country that uh, attacked us and that uh, there was some dishonesty being foisted upon the American people to justify the invasion. So I weighed in on that issue with a couple of tunes, you know, on earlier records. And then, you know, uh, as the Obama years unfolded towards the end, the climate change issue or towards, I mean, as a backdrop to that whole chapter of our collective history, uh, climate change was accelerating at, at uh, immeasurable well, actually measurable rates. And part of that, you know, we're converting where our industries were offering natural gas as a solution to the coal emissions, the coal, coal fired power plants all across the country. You know, it became very fashionable to to promote natural gas as the solution because there was less carbon emitted. And, and the dishonesty and misrepresentation of that principle is that that with natural gas, you're you're releasing methane, which is an even more destructive and dangerous gas into the environment. And uh, that is actually measurable. Methane is a heat trapping gas that's anywhere between 80 and 120 uh, times more efficient at trapping heat in our atmosphere, mm. uh, depending on the atmospheric conditions at any given time. And so once I 
understood the science behind that, uh, my subject, my community here in Nashville was subject to, uh, we, we all received letters from a, a certain pipeline operator who was notifying my community that, that they were going to expand their operation with one of the nation's largest natural gas compressors uh, in, with that, uh, an increase in emissions for our area and an increase in pressure on the local pipelines that are in incredibly disheveled and uh, neglected state uh, here in, in Tennessee. We have very lax environmental regulations. It's not the same as California and these operators are able to endanger communities with unsafe conditions and really have no oversight or the oversight they do have is uh, has is of questionable loyalty and integrity and, and, and has not prioritized the public interest or public safety mm. and more or less, you know, I got a peek behind the curtain of how the whole regulatory process works by uh, by uh, photographing and documenting the t the the uh, deteriorated conditions of pipelines in my community in an effort to show that this company shouldn't be allowed to expand their operation when their current operating conditions were below uh, any reasonable reasonable person's standards. And just to give it a little visual, if if your listeners can picture a 32 inch diameter. Uh, pipeline uh, built in 19, you know, put in the ground in 1944 that is half in the water and half out of the water. In other words, partially submerged in, in a creek that kids play in and no protective measures, pitted corrosion, exposed welds. Uh, we get high water events in Tennessee that will carry a dishwasher down the stream. Mm. So you can imagine. Uh, some kind of heavy impact with a pipe that's 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 exposed in the stream uh, is a public safety issue. And when we brought this to the attention here in Tennessee of, of federal regulators, they dispatched a pair of gentlemen from Atlanta to come uh, view the sites that I had documented. And in the course of that day of uh, field tripping with these uh, feds, it, it was revealed to me that uh, this agency actually gets the lion's share of its budget from uh, pipeline operators. They get a they 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 measure the volume of material passing through these pipelines, and they get a certain portion of that to fund their agency. So the incentive to call out unsafe conditions on any pipeline system in the United States under federal law, mm. there's no incentive. They're cutting directly into their own budget by declaring this pipeline to be unsafe we need to shut it down that goes directly against the budgeting for our the agencies that oversee the safety of pipelines and that that principle was revealed to me through the course of my uh engagement in this in this issue and uh it led me to participate and support the standing rock effort which was also resisting new fossil fuel infrastructure at this late stage in the climate change struggle. Yeah. Mike Younger's my guest here on the program where we're going to be talking about his music and uh, the activism work, if you will, that he does, as well as a lot of other things here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and it is really a pleasure to have you on the program, Mike. Mike Younger, our guest, MikeYounger.com. 
And uh, you can go there. We will be linked to your website as well uh, at Tell Me Your Story so that uh, people can uh, find out more about you, your music, and the work that you are doing. One of the uh, uh, interesting things that I'm able to sort of, and and I, I don't say this with any, I say this with all humility, that I join you as a songwriter. I've only written two songs, okay, but I've written two songs. Uh, one of them I've actually recorded. The other one I'm still looking for the lyric sheet. I wrote it uh, probably in uh, 19... When the heck did I write it? 1993, 94, 95, maybe 20, 30 years ago. Uh, and I'm looking for the... I typed it out uh, on a um, on electric typewriter back then, and I'm looking for that lyric sheet because I want to record it uh, because it has a lot of meaning for me. But... I know the challenges that uh, a songwriter goes through after I wrote specifically my second song that I did record. Um, I began to have, even though I had an appreciation already for musicians and songwriters, I have even greater. Uh, appreciation. I mean, I'd heard the stories, for example, John Denver wrote uh, one of his songs while uh, riding on a ski lift. He wrote another one on a napkin while he was in Hong Kong uh, and so forth. And sometimes they just, boom, they just come and you just can't stop it. And other times I heard one guy, yeah, I, uh, this one uh, was working on it uh, for 10 years. Uh, worked on it early on, and then I kind of set it aside, and I got back to it about nine years later, <laughs> and I was able to finish it, and then finally recorded it. When you, what, what is your uh, process, especially considering, I'm sure, what, what everything that's going on in your own mind about the things that you really care about and the people that you really care about? What's, what is your songwriting or creative uh, process, if I can ask that? That sounds a little uh, um, pedantic in one sense, like, you know, uh, so who cuts your hair? Uh, but uh, I've, I've always found uh, processes to be rather interesting. Well, of course, each one's different. But for me, uh, oftentimes, I will hear... A very just a, a, a fragment of a of a melody, accompanied by a few words, uh, just kind of penetrating the wall between my subconscious mind and my conscious mind. And I don't know where it comes from. You know, I don't know where the lyric and the and the melody or the the beginnings of a melody actually come from. You know, I can speculate on that, but I start hearing something like that, and then. And then expanding on it and before too long i have a couple of lines that go together and you know uh, a basic melody and that i sit down in an instrument and try and work out a little bit of a melody and you know fit fit in a, a few more lines that work with that and before too long i've got a chorus and start you know start working on the structure of the verse and it's very construction sort of uh it's very similar to like the construction process of a build, you know. Mm -hmm. You ever, you ever metaphorically uh, smashed your thumb with a hammer while you were creating? Like, oh no, that's not gonna work. <laughs> well, that's the that's the beautiful part of the creative process is if you have the right environment to work out ideas, you can work through stuff and immediately tell if something is awkward or if it's smooth or if it if it works or if it's jarring or you know. Uh, that's the, that's definitely a part of the process is vetting ideas and mm. work and trying them out and 
for me, it's finding space where nobody can hear me go through those awkward moments where you're trying out lyrics and melodies that are not keepers, you know, mm -hmm. stuff that doesn't work is just as important as the stuff that does work because you have to kind of draw it out into the light and hear it to know that it doesn't work and then cast it aside and move on. And it takes a, it takes a certain amount of uh, abandon uh, uh, to, in other words, I used to struggle with that when I lived in high density housing in, in New York and places that, were, that had thin walls and you had neighbors right on top of you. It was always sort of, uh, uh, I struggled with the idea that I'm working through these ideas. I don't want anybody necessarily, I would like prefer to be working in a vacuum that nobody can hear. And, and, and that gives me complete freedom to sound as weird and work out all, all the awkwardness out of this idea. But when you have paper thin walls and you know, there's people that can hear you that can sometimes be difficult. So for me, working through those experimental stages in songwriting, I really, I really need to seek out, you know, total privacy. Uh, and that that's not easy. Sometimes when you're traveling and you're in hotel rooms a lot and it's totally anonymous, you can get to where you really don't care what the person in the room next door thinks and you can work out your ideas, you know, mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, there's a lot of that kind of creating the right environment in, involved with getting to the keys to, or the combination to the lock. There's a great, uh, I consider it a great song by uh, the late Harry Chapin. Uh, and I believe um, it's, uh, uh, how does it, uh, it's, uh, what is it? Uh, Hold that D chord. And he, this young kid, he's in a motel room and um, there's this guy on the other side of the paper thin wall uh, and he's, you know, playing this song. And this kid's trying to get to sleep because he's got to get up early. And he pounds on the wall and he says, hey, uh, I'm trying to get some sleep here. And, and the guy on the other says, hey, uh, I, I really need to I really need to play this, you know, because, uh, you know, uh, I, I'm not singing to remember, son. I'm singing to forget, you know, and, and uh, it's about this relationship he had with this woman. And they were collaborators creating music, among other things. And. And, um, you know, he's not with her anymore or she's not with him and so on and so forth. And I think about that in terms of like your description of being in a motel room or uh, what have hotel room and trying to uh, to an, an idea comes and they can hear you through the wall. Do you ever get that pound? Have you ever gotten that? Hey, come on, man. I, I know what you're trying to do, but we, we need to get some sleep. I mean, I know you're not well, rocking you know, out, but <laughs> I try to be respectful about the, the yeah. time of the day or the mm -hmm. volume that I'm doing my yeah. thing. But uh, yeah, there have been a couple of places that <laughs> there was banging on the walls and there was a couple others that somebody called the, you know, they knew that I was the, they walked by and they saw the room number or whatever and called me, Hey man, that sounded great. You know, why don't you come out and play for us all? And you know, sometimes you just have to be like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. But I'm, I'm actually working on something. Yeah. So Mike, you Mike, both sides. Yeah, Mike Younger's my guest here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host, and we're talking with Mike Younger. Uh, MikeYounger.com is the website. Uh, we're going to be hearing some of his music throughout this program, so uh, stay with us as we as we do just that. How many songs have you written that you're aware of? I mean, that you can remember writing. <laughs> uh, well, when I when I went when I left when a publishing agreement that I had signed that was active for about 
up until maybe 2003 or 2004. Uh, I think but at that time I had 80. I had 80 songs or something like that. And I've been writing pretty steady since then. So I would say at least another another 40 or 50 since, since then. So You've got a good dozen albums me. right there. Yeah, you know, I mean... Some of them were made it to onto an album, and some of them are just uh, in the catalog and may end up on something somewhere down the road. You know, I was curious about um, uh, this aspect because honestly, I have never listened to an album uh, as if I was listening to a book, chapter one, chapter two, chapter three. But I'm hearing more and more that artists are actually uh, putting their songs in a particular order. And they want people to listen. And, and yet at the same time, I'm going, well, I don't listen that way. I mean, I, I go to Spotify and they just they just shuffle them around with the artist I'm listening to or what have you. Uh, and yet I can remember when I was playing the vinyl that, you know, you had to go from track one to two to three to four. Do, has that is that something that you have done or something you've thought about doing and saying, folks, you really need to listen to these songs in order because there is there's a path that I want to take you down kind of thing. I, def I definitely put a lot of thought into sequencing and it evolves as the, as the record is being made. And sometimes I go into it knowing a semi, you know, a semi order that I want the sequence to be, but you know, you're, you're making reference to a, to a, a sort of a branch of, of the rock and roll family that, told stories in their albums the the concept album uh idea you know like mm -hmm. there was a bunch of uh pink floyd is the first one that jumps to mind you know they made their albums that were from start to finish it was the unfolding of a story uh and and i have put together albums with that with that uh idea in mind uh but i never really I never really kind of pass on any instructions to my listeners as to how they should listen and <laughs> listen to it. You know, if they should listen to it start to finish or track by track, the way we listen to music, the way, like you just referenced the digital platforms and the song by song nature of, of the industry today uh, has transformed that, you know, very few people listen to a concept album from start to finish. They pick out the tracks they want. And ultimately that translates down to like our, our musical culture is oriented towards individual tracks, you know? Uh, so to go against that and to, 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 to tell your listeners to advise your fans that they need to listen to, uh, to the song in a particular order sort of goes against the current rules of the road, I, I would think. Mike, let me ask you uh, about, uh, and maybe this goes without saying, uh, or even asking. <laughs> You're, th th what, aside from your activism, what are some of the other inspirations, maybe even the word, uh, uh, what is your muse? I, I would say that, my, I don't know if muse is the right word. I'd go back to the word inspiration. Okay. Uh, I didn't have the traditional, I mean, I don't know what everybody else did, but I, I 
managed to finish high school and I was, you know, kind of at odds with my with my parents at that point. They 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 were from a real traditional uh, disciplinarian sort of uh, cultures, and I was 17 and and becoming a very conscious adult and had to had to be on my own. So I left home pretty young and with a guitar in one hand and a knapsack in the other. And I hitchhiked all over Canada for a bunch of years and, and lived in Vancouver and Toronto and then New York and New Orleans and became a street performer. I mean, I, I was a street performer while I was still living at home and going to high school, but I realized at that time that I could travel the world this way. I could, uh, I could make my way in the world anywhere I went mm-hmm. uh, with my songs and singing if I was smart enough and, you know, disciplined enough. Uh, and so that journey seemed so easy to me as a, as a, as a kid. And as I got deeper into it, I, uh, the complexities and difficulties of it, you know, started to dawn on me and pile up and, and, and I, uh, didn't have the same kind of stability and security in my life that most people do. Uh, that time I was from 17 until, from when I was 17 until I was about 25, I uh, my my life sort of descended into the street life, and I became uh, uh, detoured from my from my uh, musical education, and and had to learn how to survive in, in Canadian cities first. And then, when I made the the transition to New York, you know, it was a bumpy ride, and I ended up. Uh, really kind of experiencing homelessness in the United States in one of the biggest cities that, if not the biggest city that, that this country has. And uh, it, it about swallowed me up. But my point in telling that whole story is that along this journey, I met, you know, I, I met dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of just amazing people, artists uh, of, of many of many different mediums and, and people who were non-artists, you know, that were also wonderful people that were struggling and that uh, were experiencing this this lowest rung of society the same way as I was. Yeah. And uh, a, a common uh, a common sentiment that was expressed to me is something to the effect of, you got it, kid, you get there, you're doing it for all of us. And in some ways, when I feel when I feel discouraged and dejected and 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 start questioning what the purpose is to carry on and keep keep going forward and keep pushing and fighting, I think of all the people that I've lost that said something to that effect to me, and and I feel semi obliged to continue to bring my stories and 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 my songs to the public sphere. Uh. Harry Chapin was a great, uh, a great uh, storyteller, and again, another one of his songs about a young kid who basically um, packs his bags and grabs his guitar, gives his bike to his brother before he leaves, and heads off to look. Uh, he actually moved, goes down to the south to look for this old blues man who's going to teach him how to play, and uh, uh, he's you know, and then of course another one about how you know. Uh, Write about your feelings, not the things you've, you never did. I've noticed that when a musician or, and or songwriter, singer-songwriter, 
And and one of the artists I'm thinking of is, for example, in our modern days, Adele, who the reason why she was so popular, in my opinion, is not because of the musical notes. It's not because of the way it was produced. It was not because of her appearance or the sound of her voice, which none of this hurt. But it was because she wrote from her heart. She wrote from her happiness, her sadness, her joy, her pain. She wrote from where we all come from. When you, I'm sorry to interject, when you are nope. being that honest and raw with what's going on, your chances of of tapping into something universal that, that is a part of our collective human experience that other people have experienced in their lives, your chances of actually accessing something universal is much higher when you're being totally and completely honest with what's going on inside your own life and your own head and heart, you know, and, and uh, you know, that, that authenticity and sincerity is something that people can see and sense. And that's what I think that people really connected to with Adele. Okay. All right. Well, I want to, I want to also ask you as we continue here, I want to talk about some of, of the influences uh, not so much experiences or what have you, but other people, artists, and so forth who have uh, who have influenced you. Not specifically songs, but your uh, your drive to create. As we continue here with Mike Younger on "Tell Me Your Story," I'm Richard Dugan, and we're talking with Mike Younger, MikeYounger.com, and uh, we encourage you to go to his website, listen to his music. Uh, before I go into the whole uh, who has influenced you uh, to become the musician you have become, as well as to uh, become the musician you will become in the future, I want to ask you about your genre. And I'm not going to, to, to pigeonhole you. What genre or genres, if you will, of music does Mike Younger put out? Or is it just, hey, this is just the sound that Mike Younger makes? <laughs> well, you know, those handles have evolved over the years in the current, in the current uh, uh, environment and, and incarnation of our industry. I would guess that I would I mean, I, I, I would fall into the column of Americana, which back in the day was called folk music, uh, you know, um, but I have an element of rock and roll in my music as well uh, when I'm performing with the band and even solo, you know, I bring a little a little rock and roll to the show, even with me and an acoustic guitar. But, uh, you know, I I am one of those cats that, that did make the pilgrimage. I grew up in the East Coast of Canada and as I became more conscious, you know, the, I grew up on the same stuff that everybody else did, like Led Zeppelin and The Who and The Rolling Stones and The Beatles and Bob Dylan and Pink Floyd and all the, those big, big bands. But, you know, Dylan and The Stones and The Beatles, those, those, when I started digging into what they were listening to and what influenced them, that was when the door kicked open for me and I, and I you know, became aware of, you know, the the blues and country and rhythm and blues artists that preceded the rock and roll era. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when I left Canada to come to the United States, uh, my first destination was New York City to see if there were any remnants of the old folk folk renaissance of the 1960s, uh, if, if there was anything left of that structure 
that was uh, sort of a, a support network for Roots Music. And uh, and then once I, I'd had done a, a few rounds with New York City and had my backside handed to me, I continued my pilgrimage southward where I had been turned on to Mississippi John Hurt and Howlin' Wolf and Hank Sr. And, you know, just like a long list of uh, musical person, you know, just wellsprings, uh, towering figures in our musical culture. And they all, you know, I couldn't help but notice a lot of them came from the deep south. And, you know, I, uh, I, I left New York for New Orleans and tried to soak up as much rhythm and blues and soul and gospel and uh, all of those musical forms and jazz. I tried to soak up as much of that stuff during my years down there. It was almost like going to college for me, you know, like oh, being exposed yeah. to a, 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 a rich musical culture like that, that you could uh, take in any day of the week mm -hmm. was, was extraordinarily valuable to me. So I would say there are some elements of each of those genres in my stuff. Mm -hmm. Back in the day, they would call that folk music, right? Or folk rock or whatever yeah. like that. And nowadays they call that Americana. Well, I'll tell you, I, uh, I I actually get a twinge. And, of course, you're there in Nashville, Tennessee. And, of course, my first thought when I found out where you were from or where you are now, I should say, where you are now, I'm going, ah, it's probably country, probably country music. Well, you know, there's a little little country flavor in there but it is not you know country western uh i i actually had to switch from country to classical music listening uh because the lyrics were starting to bug me not that i didn't like the lyrics but it was like it, it's it I, i'm in my head too much whereas with classical music there are no lyrics it's just the music that still can emote but it's not directing you in a particular direction uh like uh, a song about a uh, a guy sitting at a bar drinking a, a whiskey or a beer trying to forget the girl or a guy sitting at the bar drinking a whiskey or a beer trying to get the girl. <laughs> there's, a, there's a time and a place for each of those types yeah. of music, I yeah. guess, you know, I, I feel you on that. There are moments where I want to hear I want to hear the songwriting. And then there are moments where, you know, uh, Chopin and Mozart are good enough for me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've, I've got a, an amazing collection of, believe it or not, of classical CDs. I still have CDs, ladies and gentlemen. I also still have vinyl, okay? <laughs> and um, I had a good friend of mine who, uh, when CDs started coming out and he would listen to them, he said, I'm never buying another CD again. I will never listen to music from a CD. I will only listen to music from vinyl. And it was a, it took me a while to to understand why he said that. And it was because with vinyl, you still have that th there's still that tonal quality that I don't care how sophisticated your computer program is. Uh, it still doesn't quite get there. And he said the warmth is lost uh, from from a, a needle riding in the groove. You know, and and I, I can appreciate his his sentiment, at least, because I've been in radio for a long time and I've gone from uh, tape uh, to uh, CD and, and digital now to just, as they call it, file sharing, if you will. And all of that is doesn't have the same worth. But I still have a, I have a record album. I, I, I mean, a, a turntable, two of them, actually. And um, I haven't listened to albums on it yet. But that's one of the things I was mentioning earlier 
when you go to listen to an album, a vinyl album, uh, or if you are still listening to analog tape, you listen to the songs in a particular order. So when I am listening to Spotify and I hear, oh, yeah, and then the next song that's coming up is, oh, no, it's not. You know, <laughs> you expect it to be in order, and it's it, it doesn't happen that way uh, in the computer age. Uh, in terms of the the uh, well, let me let me back that up a little bit. At a, at what age did you would you say you became a musician, whether it was a songwriter uh, or a singer or a performer, either of the three or all three? Uh, at what age did you start that, that that switch was flipped and you were listening to all these different artists and going, yeah, that's that's what I need to do? Well, I I would say that uh, when I, I was very fortunate that in my hometown, Halifax, Nova Scotia, they had a uh, through the public school system and uh, I was I was off. There was an after school program where you could you could. Uh, attend some basic guitar lessons and and get the get the beginnings you know uh, learn some chords and learn some finger picking patterns and learn how to learn how to do some a few tunes and all that kind of stuff and i was very keen on learning how to play so by 12 and 13 i was taking a couple of classes like that after school and uh and shortly thereafter when i, I started going to high school in the city I, I started busing into the city. I, I was a kind of outskirts of town kid, but I started busing into the city for high school. And it wasn't short. It wasn't long after that, that I would take my lunch hours and take the guitar down to, I'd walk down to the downtown public library and set up on their stairs. And I'd play for the lunch, the lunch crowd that was playing down. I mean, that was, you know, sitting out on the public, on the, on the benches and stuff like that. And I started making money, you know, I started earning a few dollars here and there and getting better at my craft. And, you know, of course I wanted to practice all the time and there was some balancing out to be done with homework and schoolwork and stuff like that. But uh, it was my passion at the time. And I started, I, I don't want to be a bad influence on any of your, your younger listeners out there, <laughs> but I started cutting classes, you know, I started, I was down there for lunchtime and it's like, I'm, I'm making money. I looked down in my guitar case and there's 40 bucks in there and it's like, oh, but it's time to get to physics class or whatever class. Mm -hmm. And, and I better hustle and pack this stuff up and get going and jump on a bus and get back to the school. And, but there's so many people here. It's such a beautiful day. I don't know that I feel like going back to <laughs> physics class at all. I mean, I haven't even worked half my way through my repertoire yet, you know, and there's people here that are paying me to to keep playing, you know, and that's that, you know, it led to problems for me. You know, my my school administrator, you know, contacted my family and, and let them know that that was happening. And, you know, it contributed to the teenage angst and, and uh, uh, the uh, breakdown of of authority over over my adolescence life uh, but it was a very important step in me taking my music from being private up to being public there was a part and, uh, of the um oh, how do we say this uh, there was a part of the institutions be they the educational or the family institutions 
that was interfering with you being able to have and express your voice, it sounds like. Well, one day the principal of my high school walked by the walked by me. I was in the middle of a song and I just kept playing and hoped that he wouldn't recognize me. And, he kept walking. <laughs> yeah, and right. then he went about 20 feet and he did, he did a double take and turned around and he pointed at me and he said, you're one of my kids. And I said, I'm Mr. Blank. <laughs> he said, you're supposed to be in class. And I said, well, I, I've got a free period, but I am going to be coming back to finish up my classes this afternoon. And he's like, well, I'm going to check in on that and make sure that you're there. And well, that put me on his radar, and he he became conscious of the fact that I was missing classes. And, and yeah, I, I mean, it could be seen from the perspective that you just said, like the the institution and, and the, um, the structure that is that exists for adolescents, school age adolescents, was sort of interfering with my creative. Uh, development, but at the same time, it, it contributed to my creative development as well. So it was a give and take. And, and there was, you know, I mean, I don't want to discourage any listeners out there from going to school and, right. and, and doing well and all that stuff, because that's real important, too. But uh, that was when I stepped out. To, the long answer to your question is that it was during that time that I realized that this is the this is the path that I want to take. Did you did you consider your administrator's comments to you at that time with the example you just gave us uh, less of a rebuke and more of an acknowledgement that you were you were doing something there? Yeah, I know. Yes, you've got school. You've got to get back to class. But it wasn't like, hey, knock it off, pack it up and let's go. I mean, he could have shut you down. Well, and he didn't. I want to be respectful of him because he was just doing his job. Yeah, you know, yeah. Trying to trying to herd all those, like, herding cats. Yeah. All those <laughs> my my all of my peers at that high school. He was responsible for a lot of kids in their education, but he hurt my feelings because he, when he called my family, he told them I was panhandling downtown. Oh. And and I had to explain my way out of that. And uh, I was never panhandler, even in my darkest moments. I would yeah. play with three strings on my guitar and, and, you know, I just, the beg, the begging thing was just a little bit, I, I wasn't able to, I never felt good about that. So I never did it. Uh, yeah. You know, even if I only had three strings on my guitar, I'd, I would play for my money or I'd wash dishes and I work a gazillion jobs along the way. Mike uh, Younger's my guest. MikeYounger.com is the website. We will be linked to it as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, and we're here with Mike Younger, and we encourage you to go to his website, MikeYounger.com. And I want to ask you about uh, the—obviously, uh, your school administrator was an influence on you, be it positive or negative, or a combination of both. Uh, and again, as as you've uh, well stated, you know, being respectful of the fact that he was just doing his job, just like you were kind of, even as a kid, doing your job. Um, who were some of the people, individuals in your circle, if you will, uh, that that made the biggest impression on you and uh, uh, basically said to you, whether it's directly or otherwise, pursue this, go for it, do it. Uh, if this is what's in your heart, if this is your heart's desire to, to express yourself in this way, don't let anybody stop you. Well, that's a tough one. I didn't have a lot of encouragement, but I would, I have to acknowledge my sister in that, you know, like, 
it, it was my my music was a source of a lot of trouble in our household because my parents really had intended for me to be to pursue academics and you know end up being somebody that gets paid a lot of money and not 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 a not a musician <laughs> and they were hoping that I was going to go to college and all those things and uh and when it became apparent that I my um attention span for academics was waning and that my attention was really captivated by music um you know they there was a power struggle there was an authority struggle and my sister was the one who always encouraged me and encouraged me and, and, and told me that you know if you're really feeling this then don't worry about mom and dad they'll they'll come around and you just do what you're going to do and uh, but do it well and and have the discipline to do it as best you can and all that stuff mm. that was a that was a major that was a major uh, uh support you know an early support and then you know along the way there were there was pockets of musicians in Toronto and and Vancouver that that encouraged me along and when I, I I would I would say that I had mostly discouraging experiences up until I I arrived in New Orleans. I mean New York was really like a crushing experience for me, like adapting to being like a total street person and living in abandoned buildings uh, with really kind of you know a combination a mix of criminals and crazies and drug addicts, you know, in the, in the could, abandoned buildings. We could buildings. use the term sketchy, sketchy yeah, individuals. Yeah, you know, I mean, <laughs> I was just trying to find my way back to back to the Greenwich Village folk scene, and here mm. I was lost in the early 90s in New York City, and uh, that was all quite discouraging. Uh, I did make some some friendships that have lasted and helped me get, get oriented in New York later uh, in the Roots music scene, but it wasn't really until I arrived in New Orleans that I found an environment that was encouraging for me as a young developing musician. Uh, in the in the community of street musicians at that time when I arrived in uh, 93, it would have been, uh, there were some older street musicians who took an interest in my music and said, hey man, when you're done playing today, why don't you come over? I got a stack of records that you need to hear and you know, we got a 12 pack and, and you know, we'll just hang out and I want to play you a bunch of music. And there was Norman Shepard uh, was, a, was a washboard player in a, in a street band down in New Orleans. And he really like, I guess he must've been in his fifties or something like that, but he took an interest in me uh, and my talents. And he's the one that turned me on to Hank senior and uh, lefty Frizzell, uh Howlin' Wolf, uh, Sonny Boy Williamson. Uh, I also had a figure like that. One t years later, I was I used to travel from New Orleans to. I would leave New Orleans in the summers because it was very hot and the tourist dollars sort of dried up. So you would be you were like a, a seasonal worker and, and you'd travel and you'd go north in the summer to, you know, where the weather was cooler. And I I, I often would return to New York City, and I, my my I didn't like playing underground in the subways. I would like I like to play above ground in, in the sunshine, or you know, uh, I, and and it was on the NYU campus. If anybody, uh, if any of your listeners are familiar with New York, I, I, I used to play in Washington Square all the time. And one time I was playing there, and this uh, 
this gentleman Ben Jennings who was he he had a, he had a bad leg and he he couldn't get around so well easy but somehow for some reason he had wandered all the way from 14th Street and 8th Avenue which is a long haul down to Washington Square Park still you know west side Greenwich Village area but he had traveled walked a long distance which was unlike him I didn't know him at, yet at the time but it, because of his leg I know that it was unlikely for him to travel that distance and he just by some sheer coincidence happened to walk past me as I was playing in the park and he hung out and listened and then struck up some conversation told me he had been living in New Orleans in 63 and 64 in a little flop house with Jerry Jeff Walker when Jerry Jeff wrote that song Mr. Bojangles and 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 Jerry Jeff had been playing in door in the same doorways that I had been playing you know for the last number of years and he, and his story went from you know empty apartment with a futon on the floor uh to you know he when he wrote Bojangles his his life transformed in a very you know I mean, sudden, oh, sudden. Yeah. He went from rags to riches. He was that story, but he was a street musician. And Ben was telling me this story, and he's like, he became another person that not only encouraged me and acknowledged that uh, my talent was was noticeable, mm -hmm. uh, but he also had, you know, all these stories from the '60s and '70s and his experiences. Uh, in around musicians and rock stars like Jerry Jeff and and he had a, a great uh, record collection uh, that that he turned me on to all kinds of amazing stuff. I mean, he, he was the one that played the Icantina River Deep Mountain High record for me, which was like, I, I don't know, it was that one hit me like a ton of bricks. It, it, it made me realize that, you know, this this sound didn't come out of the thin air. Uh, it percolated, you know, the sound of rock and roll and the Beatles and that uh, that didn't just happen out of nowhere. It was a tradition that was carried on from rhythm and blues traditions of the 1950s. I mean, one musical influence led me to the next mm -hmm. piece of the puzzle. And then that opened a, the channel to the next few pieces of the puzzle. And gradually I sort of yeah. put together my understanding of the American musical journey. We're talking with Mike Younger, and uh, we are certainly hopeful that you will go to his website, MikeYounger.com. Uh, you'll find out about his music, the work that he's doing. How many albums do you have out right now? I don't, I don't, know, I don't know if we still call them albums or not. Uh, compilations of, of I songs. I put six, six releases out. <laughs> okay. The well, first one was with a label, and the rest of them have been independent. Okay. And uh, we encourage you to go there. Uh, you can people get those uh, um, compilations, if you will, uh, or releases uh, through your website? Yes. All right. We encourage folks to go to MikeYounger.com as we continue here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. The more you talk about yourself and the people who have influenced you and the experiences that you have, have had, the more songs of one of my favorite artists, Harry Chapin, come up in my mind. Uh, you know, because uh, there's, there's another song where he starts out uh, as this young kid who just happens to come across a guitar and he wants to learn to play and to sing and all this kind of stuff. And he's he's and, and I, I love what Jack Benny said years ago. He says, you have to practice even to be bad. Uh, and um, Harry, he's there up on stage. I'm listening to the live version and he is strumming through the notes as if 
I were strumming through the notes because I don't know how to play the guitar. Okay, it's horrible. And um, and of course, it gets better and better. He says, yeah, if I could just have, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, a drum to help me keep the beat. And then uh, in the background, some strings that would come along to make it sound so neat and this and that and the other thing. And uh, he would get better and better as the as the chorus went along. And then he would tell verses about people who, uh, like his girlfriend, uh, said uh, as he was playing, says uh, he was playing a love song for us. Says, "Hi, I, I need to find a bar and get a drink, you know, uh, because he is just so bad." And his his uh, music <laughs> teacher uh, basically took a sabbatical, or was it a reprieve, uh, because of 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 this th- this particular character's playing. Uh, and, and, and other songs about songwriters and song, uh, singers and, and young kids who want to go off and learn to play the blues, for example, or uh, what have you. And uh, it's just amazing, these stories that you're telling me that I'm remembering these uh, songs from this particular artist. Uh, do you find that, um, have you ever found a song that you have written or maybe that you're working on? Oh, that's already been said. I uh, no, no, no. I'll crumple it up, throw it away. I'm not gonna. No, someone's already done that. Have you ever come across that where, you know, it's I, I you know, someone else has already done that. Uh, yeah, I mean, in the songwriting process, you, just out of respect, you you try to make sure that your your lyric or your melody isn't plagiarized. There's mm-hmm. always that process. You know, you're always there's always like. And sometimes it, it manifests in this form, like you're like really you're hearing this melody, you're hearing a lyric that's going with it, and you're like, man, this where did this come from? Because they manifest out of thin air, you know, yeah. like I said earlier. And you're like, I hope I, I hope that's not something I heard recently, and I just don't remember having heard it, you know. And then mm-hmm. you, you know, you build a song around it and hope it's not somebody else's. And well, and you know, most of the time when that happens. It is an original idea, you know what I mean? Uh, yeah. But, but everything in folk music and in our musical culture is a derivative of the things that came before it. Yeah. You know, I mean, there is innovation and there is groundbreaking new, you know, stylistic uh, things happening where new ground is being broken. But as far as like forms, uh, the, the that stuff is mostly... In, set in place and, and derivative of the, the early traditions in Celtic music and in, and in the blues and, and it, you know, in the earliest forms of our music and all of folk music is sort of derived from that. So as an extension of that tradition, I don't sweat it too much, you know, yeah. like at the same, as much as I try not to like get, have an air in any idea that's, too close to somebody else's idea and therefore unoriginal. Uh, there's also a component of, of folk music tradition where uh, certain melodies and certain usage usage of certain words or language or you know ri- the rhythms the, the polyphonic the, the polyphonic rhythms and stuff like that they 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 relate to and are derivative of a tradition. And you can't. I mean. If you go to too much, too many lengths to erase that, yeah, you have nothing. You're it's really, silence. <laughs> yeah, you're really like un- undercutting your own your yeah. own foundation or you know yeah. musical roots. And and to me, that's part of the problem when I hear. And again, I, I, I songwriters and singers, musicians, and so forth, they they deserve to 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 be compensated for the work that they do. 
By the same token, everything that you've just said, songs don't come out of a vacuum. They come out of what we have heard in our past. You haven't heard all the music there is to hear on the planet. So how do you know that uh, Billy uh, Foster over in uh, Greenland wrote a song that has a rift that is sounding an awful lot like a rift that you've got in your song, and now he wants to sue you for copyright infringements. Like, I don't even know who you are. I've never even heard your music. And, and to me, this is part of the problem uh, in, in, in terms of that whole issue of uh, specifically in, in the music industry. Well, I don't know Billy Foster, but I'm just hoping he's there, not I don't know that there is one. He's I not just one made of these litigious. I hope he's not one of these litigious <laughs> songwriters that, I, that you run into from time to time. <laughs> That's all I can say about that guy. <laughs> but I'm, I, but do you see where I'm going with this? It's like, you know, where does this stop? Because we, I'm influenced, even my song that I have written and, and, and produced, um, might have some elements because of the influences of the people like John Denver and Harry Chapin and Dan Fogelberg and and uh, even Jean-Luc Ponty and and um, uh, uh, some of the other artists that I listened to as a kid growing up and some of the music that my parents and Marty Robbins, for example, that my dad introduced me to and. Uh, uh, there was a folk group. Uh, he had an album. And I've been looking everywhere for it. The album was actually called Hootenanny, and it was folk music. And I still remember that that genre. And uh, my mother, I think she loved Lena Horne, you know. Yeah. And 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 uh, I know that they listened to Frank and Dean Martin and and many of these other artists. And it's like I'm influenced by all of these people. And so, how do I make sure that every note that I put on the paper? is mine and not theirs because you know, i mean you got to draw the line somewhere i mean you, you you leave that up to the litigating attorneys to decide <laughs> where that where the line is where you know, plagiarism <laughs> starts and and the end you know you've reached the end of the folk tradition and you've entered into plagiarism territory i mean uh, that's they, you know yeah. knock knock on wood i've never been through that but you know george harrison went through it and robert plant and jimmy page are going yeah. through that yeah. you know so i mean it usually only afflicts those who have, you know, major success. And yeah. when you get there on that level, then you've got all kinds of new people making claims. And 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 some and in some cases, those claims are legitimate. But you know, I I'm been very encouraged to to hear that some of my heroes in music, who have been called out on that, you know, the Stones is one is one uh, band, mm -hmm. and you know, when there is an outstanding claim. They generally are very respectful and loving of the blues community that gave them their yeah. foundations, and they go to great lengths to make sure that those people are compensated fairly. You know what I mean? Yeah. When there is such a claim, you know, I don't think that it's always well. You know, good luck getting through my wall of attorneys. Sometimes these artists really have not forgotten where they came from, and they remember yeah. and and hold in high uh, regard the. The musical traditions they come from and, and feel like they should spread the wealth a little bit you know when it come, when when they get called out on it yeah you know, you know and that's an interesting point that you bring up because many of the artists that you have mentioned bands and and solo artists i've i've seen a lot of interviews with a lot of different musicians and i don't want to say a majority of them but many of them will credit the early their early days of singing in the church 
and that it's church music that really started the influence and sometimes you will really hear that in some of their some of their releases how about how about you was 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 the church uh, at all an influence for you well we were i was raised catholic both my both my folks were were uh, of the catholic tradition but they were they were engineers they were science minds and mm. we were pretty humble household and uh i wouldn't say that we were agnostic but we were in uh, sort of in the undisciplined catholic uh, column you know we didn't we didn't go on on sundays we celebrated the big holidays and stuff and and the values you know of doing unto others and mm-hmm. you know the the basic underpinnings of the values the values that are that are transferred in the catholic tradition but as far as being card carrying members of the community and attending church and singing and that was that was not something that my my family got us into like we had the option to take bible study and and stuff like that and you know it just wasn't it just wasn't my thing you know yeah. uh, as a kid and i really enjoy singing I, I enjoyed singing in choir when i was in high school I, I, it was an important part of the music program i think it was 30 percent of our mark was your choir uh performance and attendance so i did get some choral singing in my in in my early roots but it was not through the church but mm. I, I, I'm, I gotta add that most of the music that I gravitated to, the the rhythm and blues and soul music and the gospel, mm-hmm. all emerged from the church. I mean, all those sounds came from even the blues stuff. When you go back to people, you know, traveling, dudes like Reverend Gary Davis and stuff like that. Like the blues tradition is also it's 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 not it's not you know in the major scale like most of the gospel stuff, but it is a, a branch of that spiritual yeah the spirituals you know that that all of that music is based on you know and and i think there are some people today uh, maybe uh the millennial generation who don't know that uh the uh i i guess they still call him this the king of rock and roll elvis presley actually put out some gospel albums because that was also part of his upbringing and how he was influenced as well I mean, in many of the interviews and interactions that he that were recorded of him, not music, but conversations, uh, the man was always uh, in in his younger days. He was always respectful. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. That kind of thing. And I mean, you know, and I I was born and raised Catholic, too, you know, Uh, and uh, I am no longer uh, I'm not a practicing Catholic, but I still hold the rituals and the traditions and the ceremonies that I experienced as a kid growing up. Uh, I still hold those near and dear to my heart. Those are kinds of things that we need more in our daily lives is ritual and tradition and ceremony uh, uh, on on those special occasions, whether they be anniversaries or birthdays or graduation days or whatever the significant days are that come up in our lives. Uh, and it leads me to uh, 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 one other question I want to ask you uh, in regards to this, your music. You're performing. How does it serve you? How does it feed your soul? What does it do for Mike Younger? Because we know what Mike Younger does 
for the audience, for the listener? Well, I guess the, the, the most clear and concise way that I can answer that question is this. I've seen some ups and downs and I've been discouraged and to the point where I was given up hope on, on music and try, I was at that stage in my life that a lot of musicians end up at coming to. Uh, what am I going to do from here? What's my plan B? How am I going to, how am I going to keep going? How am I going to make ends meet? It doesn't look like, it doesn't look like, uh, you know, I'm going to be playing stadiums and, uh, you know, I'm not, I haven't, I haven't been successful at securing a record contract. You know, I don't have hit songs on the radio, all that stuff. I've had my moments of, of being very discouraged. And I, I you know, my story is compounded by the fact that, uh, I did get a chance to record with my heroes, uh, you know, Levon Helm and Spooner Oldham and David Hood are all on my new, my recent, most, my current release, Burn in the Big Top Down. And, and, and although those, tr those tracking sessions happened in 2001, really early in my, in my uh, journey of transitioning from a street musician to a recording artist, uh, this was, uh, a formative experience for me and how does that relate to the question you asked me again goodness gracious can you repeat that question how does the music what does it do for me what does it do for you uh, so as i uh, very uh, in, in my wordy way i try to explain uh i have seen some ups and downs and and my downs were that I recorded with my heroes and those no sooner had that happened than the possession of the tapes and the possibility that that, that that music might see the light of day and be released to the public was swept off the table and those tapes were lost for almost 20 years. It was crushing oh. and I had to continue. I had to go on and produce, uh, you know, continue producing work as if it had never happened. And I started to lose hope and my, my light was getting dimmer and I was looking at plan B and I was fixing cars and there was something gratifying about being able to fix somebody's car and give it back to them and, and turn it around for, you know, a quarter of the money they would have paid at the dealership. I liked that. That was gratifying, instant gratification. Hey, Mike, you can do something useful. I felt good about it. Mm -hmm. But the further I went down that road, the further I realized how there, I was abandoning a part a part of me that I had cultivated from a very young age. And, and, and that, that part of me was really struggling with the idea of now being abandoned. You know, there was a part of me that, that, that hungered to be performing, that hungered to be part of that creative uh, process. And uh, when the opportunity came around for me to uh, reclaim the record that I had lost in 2001 and I and I got my hands on that record and I started working to complete it adding background vocals uh, horns doing some editing on some of the songwriting and then launching it in 2001 it sort of opened this it, it the, the 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 whole um, inertia behind that process reminded me of how much of a sense of purpose music gives me. When I'm when my life is about music, I have a sense of purpose. Mm. And when you take that away from me, when you take music away from me, I am one lost individual and I have no sense of purpose. I I can languish and take comfort in bad things. <laughs> that, <laughs> you know, I'm subject to the same sort of temptations and and uh, and. Uh, 
diversions as anybody else to kill the pain and take my mind off of what's hurting me, you know, and, and, and music, uh, my entire journey from being a hitchhiker to a squatter, a homeless guy to street musician and all that stuff. I always, as a young kid, the mantra that I would come back to is stay close to the music, Mike, as long as you stay co close to the music, things are going to be all right. You drift too far away from the music. I can't, I can't guarantee, you know, that this is the voice in my head saying, just stay close to the music. Don't drift too far away from that. You know, cause there's all kinds of ways to drift away from music when you're a street person. Mm -hmm. And I kept, I held true to that. I stayed close to the music and made that the central part of my journey for many, many years until, you know, until my career ambitions were crushed by, you know, this experience of losing this record. And I had to pick up the pieces after that. And I started to, lose that discipline of staying close to the music and i started thinking about plan b too much and i wasn't happy and it took me a couple of years of doing plan b and really setting my life transforming my life to be about fixing cars and, and farming and stuff like that which was all good all those things are good i'm not knocking them any any mechanics or farmers out there you know hats off to you my friend i know how hard you work because i've done it but my soul was was uh, crying out to get back on track with music that whole time. And finally, when I got my hands on this record that I lost mm. 20 years before, I was like, okay, my soul is telling me to go to hit the gas, to, to change lanes and get over here in the music lanes, the music lane and hit the gas. And that's, and that's sort of what I've been doing. And so you did find after 20 years, you found uh, those songs again, that those tapes, and, yeah. and that's what uh, this uh, latest album is. Is that right? This latest release? Yeah. It, you know, I mean, over the years, Levon passed away and then Jim Dickinson, the producer, passed away. And then Jack Holder, the owner of the studio where, where we worked, he passed away. And I, and, and I got, you know, my heart progressively broke knowing uh, we weren't going to get to listen back together, you know, and me mm. and Levon, who we made we made friends in that session and we kept up we kept in touch for a number of years after. And I always assured him that I wouldn't rest until I, I got uh, the loose ends and the unresolved issues around the record taken care of. And I had, I had to eat those words for, for a long time, but uh, eventually I got that record back uh, because I, when Jack Holder died, I got a notification on my social media that the studio was going to be closing. And I knew they had the vault at the studio, the temperature and humidity controlled vault where they were holding all these tapes. And so I, you know, I dropped everything that I was doing and I was like, this is my last chance to make an interception on these, on these tapes and get them, get my possession on them. And, uh, and I was very fortunate enough to uh, be able to locate uh, Jack Holder's partner. And I, I was able to find her and, and give her a call on telephone and say, Miss Hopkins, uh, you might not remember me, but uh, 20 years ago, I recorded with Levon Helm and, and, uh, Jim Dickinson and a whole crew of, you know, rhythm and blues and rock OGs in your in your place. And it was, you know, the record label collapsed and the whole thing was a disaster in the end. But uh, I'm here to try and get those tapes and put them out and, 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 and share them with the world. And my intention is to is to take care of all the unresolved issues around this, this tape, these tapes, you know, because the record label went down quick and they did not take care of business.
which was horribly humiliating for me to to be working with my heroes and have them treated yeah. uh, in, a, in, in, a, in, a, in a way that I wouldn't wish on uh, anybody. Yeah. But, you know, during COVID, during when I reclaimed the record in 2017, Don, uh, Miss Hopkins, of course, said, yes, of course, I remember that session. I remember you. I was I, I thought for sure sooner or later I would hear from you and it's good to hear from you. And, yeah, we can <laughs> get these tapes. I know exactly where your tapes are. I'll get them back to you. Make sure you got a green light from Luther, Luther Dickinson, who uh, heads up the North Mississippi All-Stars. He was Jim Dickinson's son. Uh, Jim was the producer. Yeah. So I needed to get a green light from Luther mm-hmm. and I called him up and he gave me the green light. And uh, I got those tapes. And over the course of COVID, I went back and with the help of Dave Pomeroy here, he's our, the president of our local musicians union here in Nashville. With his help, I went around to all the families involved in that record. And uh, we, we managed to come to terms. And I was able to get the record into a, a good karmic place for release and uh, got the blessings of all those people, which I'm very proud of. Just out of curiosity, from a technical standpoint, is this one inch or two inch uh, tape? Two. Two, two inch, inch tape. And yeah. were you able to find in 2017 a multi-track recorder that these uh, could play on? I absolutely was able to. Uh, some friends of mine, uh, Larry Hansen, who plays keys with the Righteous Brothers uh, today. Uh, I mean, you know, I think that it's one of the original members. Uh, but at any rate, Larry Hansen has he plays keys with lots of people, not just the Righteous Brothers. He owns a studio here in town. And a couple of young engineers that I know work out of there and Chad Brown, who helped me finish this. Yeah, he's the co-producer on this record. He had access to all that equipment and, uh, you know, like 24 track, two inch tape and moved through those. Oh, I bet uh, you what a thrill that was to listen to them again. I, and I use this phrase in one of my ads, listen to them again for the first time. Yes, indeed. Oh, uh, yeah, it was a, quite a journey. You know, uh, we had to dehydrate, or what do they call it? They, we had to bake the tapes just to be certain that the, no, there was no excess humidity that I had right. collected in them. And I took those, I took them to Ray Kennedy here in in, in town. He, who your listeners might know from his production uh, prowess with Steve Earle and Lucinda Williams and and lots of other artists. Well, Ray is a pro at taking tapes that have been sitting somewhere for twenty years and and running them through a process to where they don't get ruined when you put them up on the machine and stuff. And I was mm. very fortunate to be able to go to him and have his help on that. I think the, the only experience I've had at that, and I've done some archival work of my own, it's been quarter-inch tape, of course. Um, a gentleman came in with a box full of five-inch reels. He wanted them all put together. Uh, you know, each one of them was like, I don't know, 15 minutes long, and he wanted to make them into 30-minute uh, tapes. And I'd string it, I strung the first one up, and I started playing it, and it just squeaked, just squeaked. And, and so I had to do some research. And th- I'm, we're going back to the, the late 80s, early 90s. And um, what I found out was uh, I got a can of silicone spray that would not damage the machine nor the tapes, but it would coat the tape enough so that at least I could transfer the audio to cassette because that's what we had at that time, uh, for the 30-minute programs that he wanted. And I was able to produce his programs. Uh, it was it was arduous, but I got to tell you, it was a blast. And I, 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 I actually miss the days 
of the metal splicing block, which I still have, the white china marker, which I still have, the splicing tape, which I still have, and the reel-to-reels, which I still have, and about 20 boxes of reel-to-reels that I've collected uh, from those early days. Uh, wow. There are days I miss all that. Uh, it, it was, it was, you know, nowadays it's all digital, but back then, boy, it was hands, literally hands. I on. mean, that's the stuff of legend, Richard guys, my age, you know, we, we just hear about that, that, you know, they used to do that. Well, you know, I'll be more editing than happy when, to tell you stories from <laughs> the bygone days of radio. <laughs> I mean, it's legendary stuff, you know, when they talk about like. Yeah, back in the t- in the time of you know, like uh, take your pick, the Stones or the Beatles or mm-hmm. whatever, you know, when those guys were starting out, and they didn't have like the fancy digital editing equipment that th- that you do now, and sometimes the tape needed to be cut and spliced. That is the stuff of legends to guys that grew up in the digital age. You know? Oh, I, I got to tell you that, and it's really funny too because you know today when you cut and paste and you got to delete some a section, when you delete it, for the most part it's gone unless of course your editing software has an undo feature, and uh, I use Adobe Audition and it has you can go back ten or twenty or thirty, but back then with reel to reel, and we had one of those ones that that would tilt on a on a a, a pivot, okay? Oh yeah. And so we'd have it horizontal. And you'd have to, you couldn't use a chair. You literally had to kneel in front of this machine, which is probably how I ruined my knees. And as I would splice out sections, I wouldn't just toss them into garbage. I would gently, carefully place them up on top of the the meters up above in case I needed to put it back. Or maybe I cut it too tight or too loose or what have you. I mean, I was, uh, and sometimes the splices... Uh, and I would not put splicing tape over splicing tape over splicing tape because that would make it would it would you you could wouldn't run right through the machine, uh, be too thick. So uh, I would actually, if I didn't do it right the first time, I would take off the old splicing tape and I would put that piece back in there and I'd splice it back in there and then I'd <laughs> measure it and cut a little more and oh, Whoa. what it was! It was so much fun. I never got that proficient using cassette but i could repair cassette tapes you know if i could take them apart take the screws out take all of the uh, hardware out from the inside take the spools out and then put it on the splicing block and then at least uh, somehow flatten out the wrinkled portion or if i could keep it i would and uh, or splice it with splicing tape and then trim the tape because the tape was never it was always too wide it was for quarter inch not uh eighth inch i guess is what cassette was uh, it was what a it was a marvelous a marvelous time, uh, and I don't know how many people know how to wind what they called carts. If you've ever seen an eight track, <clears throat> uh, these were carts that they use in a radio, and it was a continuous loop, uh, but it only had three tracks: left and right, and then the tone track. And um, when you record, when you hit the record button and start recording, it put the tone on there so that when it came back around, it knew where to stop. And I used to I used to wind those. I would uh, wind uh, thirty second, sixty second carts, uh, ten minute carts with the big. These were big, like uh, five or seven inch reels, but they were in big square plastic boxes. I mean, those were the days of of radio. And maybe one of these days, I I, I hope I took some pictures from some of these stations back then. But it was it was a great time. Uh, this has I must been say that a great time. The, the sound quality of uh, of cassette technology was you know i i grew up on that that's my era you know mm-hmm. like the, the cassette deck where you could 
if you heard something on the radio, you'd slap a blank in there and, yep. and press record, and you, <laughs> that's how you'd record it off the radio. You know, I mean, that's how that's how I put together my earliest, you know, listening uh, compilation tapes when I was a kid. Yeah. And I I just think that the the sound quality of tape, the analog quality, it takes us it takes you back to like oh yeah LPs and and yeah. studio tape. You know, yeah. and I know that there was a lot of there was as soon as CDs came around, well, it was a transition right what was mm-hmm. it, dat it went from from cassette to dat and then or i don't know that didn't it last too to cd long, yeah and when it jumped to cd and it was like the cassettes are over man you yeah know, like uh, now they're like uh, uh they're vintage uh antique pieces but I've, I've still got a pile of them and i listen to i have a car with a tape deck in the dashboard and it sounds pretty dang good to me when well, i'm driving yeah absolutely i have a dat player recorder at home too as well as a digital uh, uh, disc recorder uh at home and those were the small discs in a plastic box right. um i've got I, I could open a museum i guess <laughs> who knows maybe I'll, yeah maybe with the tape that. with the with the splicing equipment you have i mean there's some people that you know that have been in the music business all their life and never seen that stuff so, oh i mean you could you could open a, a museum. Well, I, I know that uh, on LinkedIn, there's a radio broadcast group, and I just popped in there one day when they were talking about uh, the celebration uh, of the 100th anniversary back in early October, the 100th anniversary of the first commercial on radio back in 1922. I also Whoa. worked in Phoenix for a radio station that celebrated its 100th birthday this year. And I have to tell you what, I did not know that it had started in 1922. And I got to tell you, when I read that, I'm going, oh, my God, and I'm part of that history, too. And you know, whether I'm written down anywhere, I know I was there for a few years uh, doing what I was doing. And it's nice to be a part of that as well. So. Awesome. Uh, Great, great stories that can be told. Mike Younger is my guest. Uh, getting a little nostalgic here on Tell Me Your Story. I'm Richard Dugan, your host. And uh, Mike Younger, I I can't tell you how much fun I've had, especially these last few minutes with you, uh, reminiscing a little bit. Maybe one of these days I'll just have to spend some time just sharing a couple of my own uh, stories from the bygone days. And it's funny, too, because... In my mind and my heart, I'm 17 years old. My body is 62, and yet that still sounds weird in my ear. I'm sorry, did you say 62? I don't know what that is, you know, kind of thing. Um, And it's weird to look back and say, oh, my God, I've been in this business for over 43 years. Are you kidding me? Wow. And I've had those moments like you, as you described earlier in the program, where I, I drifted away from radio uh, for a year or two, and I, I got to get back. I can't, I, you know, this is what I love doing. Uh, and I know you love uh, performing, creating, making music uh, for people to listen to, to hear the message. And uh, we encourage people to go to your website, MikeYounger.com, which we will be linked to, as I've said before. And I have three final questions that I ask all of my guests. Now, you may have answered these questions throughout the program, but I like to ask the questions directly. Before I do, however, to keep you in suspense, Mike, 
I need to talk to you, the listener and the viewer, and let you know that you are listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you, uh, we are giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. We're here Sundays at 7 a.m. and 7 p.m. Monday mornings at 1 a.m. streaming live at richarddugan.com. And we are also on YouTube where you can yeah. listen to and watch those interviews. And uh, we can um, also be found uh, through PayPal, if you'd like to support the work that we're doing, we would greatly appreciate that. Thank you so much for whatever you can do. Just put my email address in when you're sending, richard at richarddugan.com. Any amount is welcome. Hey, we'll take energetic support as well. We can use all of the help that we can get on all levels. We also ask you to participate in the Decade of Perfect Vision. Perfect vision means that you go within and listen to that still small voice, just as you did, Mike, uh, when uh, that voice was saying, you got to get back to the music. That was your still small voice telling you. And uh, each of you needs to listen to that still small voice and follow the promptings. It gets easier and easier the more you do it to where you don't have to ask the questions. You don't have to necessarily pause. It just it just comes. And, and, and in my life, it's just been coming. And I can still say to this day that I feel as though I've been in the right place at the right time throughout most all of my life. With all of that being said, let me ask those three final questions of you, Mike, uh, that I ask all of my guests. The first of those is, who is Mike Younger? Uh, who is Mike Younger? Well, he's this, he's this uh, tall, lanky dude from the North Country <laughs> who, uh, who's gotten a fair way down the road from, there, from where he started from. And he has remarkable conviction and devotion to making his time on this earth count and by that i mean he wants to be counted among those who are working towards solutions and there's a million different ways you can work towards solutions but as a songwriter you're in communications and you're communicating ideas and uh, and with the tumultuous time that we've all collectively experienced over the last I don't know. It's hard to tell when it started and and when it ended or, you know, like we're still in it. Uh, I feel like the voices, voices that are speaking up on social justice issues and environmental issues and people that are sticking their neck out to stand for something as opposed to being a cookie cutter that says a whole lot of nothing. Uh, that is what our culture needs right now. Like the the commercial side of our culture has led to a constant supply of bubble gum that really says very little of anything that of import. And our art form, my art form, at one time carried with it uh, a spectrum of ideas that are, rocked our entire culture and moved us forward. And mm. I feel like we are all collectively living through a time that is, you know, ideas and solutions are need to be discussed, need to be out there in the public sphere. We need to be having dialogue and we need to bring some of our fellow citizens who feel like they've been left behind and are real angry and 
angry enough to kick in the door and take what they want, you know, all that stuff. We need to bring them back to the table and make them understand that we're their countrymen and we want them to be happy also mm-hmm. and keep our our family, our national family together in a cohesive way and a healthy way where we're, our people aren't being exploited and left behind for dead and are, they're being provided, you know, opportunities to that 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 can lead to better outcomes you know in all communities i mean this, these are the these are the ideas that i try to carry forward in my music and i think that it's vitally important that other artists do it and i know that some are and uh, i encourage all of the rest of them too what is it that you hope to or want to achieve through the work that you are doing now uh i guess in part I would like to go forward knowing that I did the best that I could and did my part in the time that I had here to to uh, to create space for the type of dialogues that lead to change, positive change. I would like to think that my music had some small role in in uh, change for the better. And finally, what is your life's purpose? Well, I wish I knew what that was. <laughs> my purpose, the purpose that I referred to earlier, my sense of purpose that, that the music gives me is intertwined with this idea of use, utilizing the platform for something greater than just yourself you know like I, I would love to get rich and famous and, and who wouldn't but there's something much more important happening in the exchange of music and and communications and that is you know uh, to create the inclusivity that that really uh puts into practice what we preach as a society we 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 we, we claim to be a open inclusive society and we come up short in a lot of ways we still do we're still struggling with our the legacy of our of the the very turbulent times that our our nation has has come through and i guess you know the purpose that i feel behind my music is to hold the line on certain ideas about human rights and about uh you know uh, when I see when I see young people like Greta Thunberg being attacked on all sides for being for the for the for just being a young person trying to ask and push the issue with the adults, like the adults haven't solved this energy question that's going to kill us all, and here you know, like we are still building. Com- pipelines and compressor stations and digging in deeper into this energy paradigm that we already know our scientists have known for 50 years is going to lead to chaos and destruction for our coastal cities first and you know for many other at risks uh you know human uh situations are going to be uh, affected by this in a very negative way and and so when i see people you know coming after uh a young voice like Greta Thunberg for for standing up for this principle that I am aligned with too. I see it, 
I see how insane it is that we as a society are publicly shoveling, you know, tens of billions of dollars in subsidies at an industry that refuses, refuses and, and is actively fighting at every level of, of policy to prevent a transition into clean energy in the United States. Uh, but I see people that are, have a vested interest in that industry attacking a young kid who's looking down the road and seeing like there might be no future for me and my kids at all if this doesn't change. But I see that somebody like that subject to attack, I feel obligated to show up and to uh, to support the point of view that I am aligned with, which I agree with Greta. It's time to stop investing and throwing money into this one this one form of energy that we know is is putting our entire human experiment at risk and it's time to take those resources and start reinvesting them and and in reinvesting in people and there's plenty of people in the fossil fuel industry that are engineers and pipe fitters and welders and there's plenty of work for that type of skill set in the new energy paradigm only they've been persuaded by the big financial interests behind fossil fuels that they're livelihood is at stake and they should fight with every breath that they have to maintain public subsidies and investment in fossil fuels and I, you know that's just one issue right mm -hmm. it's a it's one that i'm really i'm really uh, interested in it's one that i've devoted a lot of time to because it it is like the overarching backdrop issue that's happening behind the invasion of ukraine behind the you know the far the extremist right uh you know incursion into our capital buildings with confederate flags you know the backdrop to all of that stuff is that our planet is transforming because we lack the capacity and vision as a a, a financially interested society you know, there's money to be made in oil and gas. So let's keep going. Why would we want to change it? Why would this money to be made? Well, you know, like, the, you know, if the if the ecosystems and, and 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 the natural world starts to come unraveled because it can no longer keep itself cool and keep the ice frozen at the poles and the what and the oceans start rising and then we start having killer storms on coasts and towns in the middle of Tennessee get washed away and sweeping 35 people of the 35 of the citizens away what good is the what good is the money and the profit making when you could take all of those loyal employees hardworking people pipe fitters welders and all them and put them to work within a solution no longer an extractive industry that's hurting the planet, but put them to work in the construction and the building of the new energy paradigm. And, you know, oh, it'll take too long. We don't have time for that, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, they must have missed the chapter of American history where in, you know, this country mobilized from one coast to the other behind, you know, getting our industry the gears of industry turning fast enough, turn out as many battleships and destroyers and jet planes and everything else that are required to beat fascism in the 40s. We did that overnight. I mean, not overnight, but we did it in very short order. We did it in a matter of years. We were able to mobilize our entire society behind that effort because it was an existential effort to crush fascism in its cradle.
Mm. Right. And so I see a lot of parallels. And when people tell me that America can't do it, I say, no, that's not true. America can do it. We just need to figure out how to get our big financial interests at the top of the food chain to see the profitability, the profitability in the transition to clean energy and the futility of trying to or, you know, futility is not even the right word. They can they can stretch out the fossil fuel era another 50 years, but by then it'll be too late to do anything. Uh, not futility, it's just reckless. It's reckless. Yeah. And, you know, we could all keep our heads down and go about our daily business and let them figure it out and we'll go over the cliff together. Or people like Greta Thunberg show up and people like me show up and people like you show up. Yeah. Well, Mike Younger, I want to thank you so much for uh, for not only your expressions, but also for your participation in this program, in this conversation. And I, I hope we get a chance to do this again soon, uh, especially when you uh, come to the West Coast and, and uh, maybe we can sit down face to face and have a chat as well. I love that, Richard. It's been a great pleasure to talk to you. And I want to thank you for listening to and watching Tell Me Your Story, New Paradigms for a New World. We're giving you choices and knowledge of those choices to help make your dreams come true. And we hope that you will join us again next time for our broadcast, podcast, videocast. Until then, love to Lal and Jeanette. I am listening.